The words for our life today are in Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one verses sixteen through twenty one. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Please bow with me in prayer, and I want to ask you to just close your eyes and ask the Lord to help you picture what I'm about to read for us now. So let's bow. At once I, John, was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. O Father, this is the living reality of heaven and earth. You gave to John a vision of real things. Lord, so many years before, you gave to Moses a vision of things that were only patterns of what was to come. 
You gave him a vision of a tabernacle and then of a temple that was to serve as a pattern of the true temple in heaven where the true throne is, where the Holy of Holies is, in fact. That is the place of which we just read now. And it is the central fact of the universe that you are seated on the throne and that you alone are worthy to be on that throne. I thank you, Father, that you are so great and mighty and powerful. I thank you that you reign over heaven and earth. I thank you that all the nations bow down to you, whether they acknowledge you or not. I thank you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because of who you are. I thank you for your grandeur and your might. And Father, I also thank you for your mercy and your grace. You are a God who is high and lifted up, and you are a God who dwells with the lowly. You are a God who dwells with us. You oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so, Father, we've come here this morning not just to acknowledge you, not just to worship you, not just to do church, but to meet with Almighty God in all of your might and all of your mercy. So come near to us, Father. We need you. Father, some of us are so discouraged and we need a word from you. Some of us are sick in our bodies and we need a a touch of healing from you. Some of us are wandering in the desert, Father. We're, We're just floating along on the sea, on the ocean of life, and we need the anchor that is Jesus Christ this morning. Some of us are in sin and we need to be rebuked. We need to be disciplined and brought back into the place where we need to be. Some of us are rejoicing in the things that you've done and our hearts are filled with praise for you and we simply need you to receive us and receive our praise. Oh God, we, your people, come in our weakness. We come with as much humility as we can and we ask you, Almighty God, meet us where we are this morning. Meet our needs, I pray, for the glory of your name. Meet the needs of those who are in Italy. Father, you know I got an email this morning from Brother John who said that worship was amazing this morning, but that the tickets are not selling so well for the outreach. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would stretch out your hand across that hardened land, Father, and soften people's hearts, draw them to the banquet that they might hear the gospel and live. Father, stretch out your hands from shore to shore all across this world and exalt your name, I pray, Father. Meet the needs of your people. Save the lost. Stretch out your hand. Show that you are God, I pray. Glorify yourself in heaven. Glorify yourself in earth this day, I pray. And I pray that you would help me now, Father, as I open my mouth to speak your word. God, you've been stirring in me for months and months and months about this series through the Pentateuch. And now that we're beginning, I pray that you would help me, Father. Help me to teach as I ought with the right balance of boldness and humility, Father. And I pray that as I preach, you would grant your spirit to your people, Father. We are your sheep. We are the people of your pasture. So I pray that you would come and feed us now through the preaching of your word. I love you for who you are. I thank you for what you are doing. And I thank you for what you will do. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, we are beginning today our series through the first five books of the Bible. This series will probably take us a year, maybe a year and a half. These five books, as you most likely know, are often referred to as the Pentateuch. 
The Pentateuch is a Greek word that simply means a five-part book. Sometimes they're referred to as the Torah. That's a Hebrew word that means the law. But one way or the other, whether you call it the first five books or the Pentateuch or the law, we will be working our way through them this year, probably a year and a half. And as we do, the plan will be to fly at about 30,000 feet and to look at the great overarching ideas and principles that are there. We will not be stopping to investigate every nook and cranny of these books, and there's a very simple reason for that. If we took the time to investigate all the details of the Pentateuch, I would be about 70 years old by the time we were done with the book of Deuteronomy. And I don't think you would like me very much, and you probably wouldn't like the Pentateuch very much. And so, rather than doing as we did in the book of Ephesians, and slowing down to look at all the details, we'll be flying at a higher level, and just looking at the overarching themes of the Pentateuch, which are the foundation for everything else that's in the Bible. And therefore, they are the foundation for everything that's truly meaningful in life. As I mentioned last week, my hope is, after spending a year or so in the Pentateuch, that we would move on from there, build on that foundation, and go to the book of Hebrews. Probably spend a year, maybe two years, in the book of Hebrews, just trying to soak our minds, soak our hearts, in the beauty of the mercy of God that's expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is the plan, and I hold it loosely before the Lord, because I don't know exactly how He will lead us in the next couple of years. With that, I want to begin our journey through the Pentateuch in somewhat of an unusual place. Namely, I want to begin with King David. I was quite drawn to King David when I was young in Christ, and I have continued to be drawn to him. He's probably one of my top three or four favorite people in the Bible. I really do love him with all of my heart. To an extent, I feel like I know him through his writings And I look forward to meeting him and fellowshipping with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. I've admired him for many things, but probably the thing that's drawn me to David most is actually his brokenness. David, as you know, was a deeply flawed man. And for whatever his purposes were, the Lord has seen fit to put some of David's flaws on display for all of us to see forever and ever and ever. And... He, in doing that, what he's helped us to see is that in spite of David's flaws, God used his life mightily for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And when I see that fact, that God used such a flawed man to glorify his name, it gives me a lot of hope. I think that's the central reason why I'm drawn to David. I am a very flawed man as well. Sometimes I feel like all I do is sin. Even when I do the right things, so often I do them for the wrong reasons, and I feel sometimes overwhelmed by my sin. But then when I think of David, I realize that if God could use a man like him, He could use a man like me. He could use a man like you. He could use a woman like you. He could use a a boy or a girl like you. Praise be to God, our God is not looking for perfect people. Rather, He's looking for people who will simply humble themselves before Him. As it is written, God opposes the proud. He is against the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. And David humbled himself before the Lord, and therefore he received much grace from the Lord in his life. I think it was the reality of this grace in the life of David that gave him such a heartfelt passion for the Word of God. 
Neither David's love for the Bible or the words that he spoke about the Bible were a put on, beloved. Rather, his words were the overflow of the heart of a man who is deeply in love with the Word of God because he was in love with the God of the Word. He had received so much grace in his life, and that's why he spoke in the terms that he did. He did not say the things he said about the Word of God because of the position he held in Israel. In other words, it's not that he felt obligated to say the right things at the right times. David was a man who had experienced the wonder and the mercy of the Word of God. And because of that, his heart overflowed with thankfulness to God. He could not stop giving thanks to God for himself and for his Word. That's why he wrote as he did in places like Psalm 19. Would you please turn there with me? I want to read for us Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. Here's what David, our brother in the Lord, wrote. He said, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's a, a, it's a strong foundation, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Beloved, these were not the words of a man who was simply paying homage to words on a page. Rather, these were the words of a man who had experienced the beauty and the wonder of the Word of God, and his heart was overflowing with adoration for that Word. He took the time to carefully craft line by line in Psalm 19 because he had so much passion and respect and adoration for both the God of the Word and the Word of God. And these words were not just the overflow of an emotion at one time of his life, but rather they were indicative of the passion he had for the Bible throughout his entire life. So I want to look at just one more example. Please turn with me to Psalm 119. And I want to read for us the opening 16 verses of this psalm because it is in its entirety an overflow of praise from David to God about his word in the midst of a difficult situation which David was facing. Here's what David wrote. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart and also do no wrong but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up my wor your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
in the way of your testimony. I delight as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And beloved, you know that David goes on in this psalm like this, with line after line after line after line, finally coming to what is perhaps the pinnacle of his expression for the love of God and the love of God's word when he says three times, Oh, how I love your word. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I love your law. And beloved, the question I want to ask us this morning is, are we hearing the heart of the King? Are we hearing the deep and authentic passion of His soul that was coming not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but was coming from true uh, overflow of praise and thanks to God? These are the words of a lover of God speaking out how he feels about the Word of God. Are we seeing it? Are we feeling it? David truly and deeply loved the Word of God because he loved the God of the Word. And at this point, beloved, we have to stop and ponder something together. It's something I want to put in the form of two questions. What do you think specifically? What do you think David had in mind when he wrote these words? To what was he referring when he said, Oh, how I love your law. To what laws and testimonies and commandments and precepts and statutes and rules was he referring when he wrote? So let's just take a minute and think through this together. Just think right through the Bible. First and Second Samuel were not complete yet in the time of David. And I know this because in a large part those books are about the life of David. And it's very unlikely that books about David would be finished before David had died, right? So they were not there, at least not complete. Likewise, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles did not exist during the lifetime of David because they were written about people who lived after David died. The book of Psalms was still being written mostly by David. The books of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, all of these were written by David's son after David died. All the books of the prophets had yet to be written. In fact, they would not be written for centuries after David died. And of course, the New Testament in all its parts had yet to be written as well. And so where does that leave us? That leaves us with only eight choices. When David was alive, only eight books of the Bible existed. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and the book of Job. Those eight books were the only ones that existed in David's lifetime. But having said that, I want to quickly add that when he uses words like law, commandments, statutes, rules, he is referring more specifically to the first five books of the Bible. David is referring to the Pentateuch, to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beloved, the point is this. King David spoke with great passion and intensity and persistence about books that we tend to either skim through or skip over completely. I wanted to begin our journey by putting this truth on the table because I want to plead with the church not to minimize the place of the Pentateuch in the life of believers. Beloved, the first five books of the Bible are the Word of God. And they are the Word of God to us as the people of Jesus Christ. And God has given them to us to impact our daily lives. They have relevance to us. And they can have power in our lives. They can affect us in a number of ways. 
that can affect our marriages, that can affect our parenting and the way that we run our households. They can affect the way we think about education and the way we carry that out in our families' lives. They can affect the careers that we choose and the way that we think about our lives in the world. They affect our ministries and the way we carry those ministries about. They affect our prayer life, our worship life, our conception of God. They greatly impact our vision of the holiness of God. They greatly impact our vision of the depravity of humanity. And they greatly impact the mercy of God that we see bridging the gap between those two things, His holiness and our depravity. Beloved, the Pentateuch is relevant to our lives and God has given it to us to affect us even in the way it affected David. God wants us to be able to say with that same passion, Oh Father, how I love Your law. In King David's day, The Pentateuch was the book of law by which the people of Israel actually lived day in and day out. So one thing I want to be clear about is that David didn't read these books in the way that we read them, and in other words, for inspiration. He read these books because he was obligated to apply those laws to the life of the people of Israel in every single sphere of life. I think it's just really important for us to get our minds around this. We try to understand why David had so much passion about these books. They were not simply theoretical to him. He would have to read them, understand them, and apply them to actual cases in the lives of actual people day in and day out. Therefore, he had a kind of perspective about the Pentateuch that we probably will never have. As David saw the law of God applied to the lives of people, as he saw the fact that it is in fact wise and good and true and just, his heart was filled with praise for God. What I'm trying to say is that David's passion was not theoretical, beloved. He watched the Word of God take root in the lives of people and in his own life, and as he witnessed that happen, his heart filled up with joy. His heart overflowed with praise. And I think that as David thought about the beauty of the Word of God contained in the first five books, I think he came to see that if one loves the law of the Lord, that one must first love the Lord of the law. If you love the God who gave the books, then you will also love His books. And if you love the books of God, you will love the God of the books. It was this combination between loving God in Himself and loving the Word that He gave that caused David to write as he did in Psalm 119. I want to reread the second stanza that I wrote. And please pay attention to how David expresses his love for God and his love for the law which God gave. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. I seek you, God. I seek the person that you are. How do I do that? Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you, the God who gave those commandments. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I will declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I will delight as much as in all riches. And beloved, you're you're hearing the words of a king here. He understood the riches of this world. He looked at the God of the Word and the Word of God and said, I value that more than all riches in the world. 
I will meditate on Your precepts. I will fix my eyes on Your ways. I will delight in Your statutes. I will not forget Your Word. Why did David speak like this about the Bible? And about the God who gave the Bible? Simply because he loved the God of the Word and he loved the Word of God and he longed to display his love for the Lord through obedience to the Word. So again, the point I'm making here is that David's passion didn't come out of nowhere. He watched the Word of God applied to the lives of everyday people just like us. And as he saw the power of the Word of God working in the lives of people, he rejoiced greatly. He rejoiced greatly. Now, as for us, we are culturally detached from the Pentateuch and to an extent we always will be. Neither in the United States nor any other country in the world, including Israel, is the Pentateuch the sole law by which the people live. So David had the opportunity of seeing the words of God live in the lives of people in a way that we probably never will. In fact, I'm sure we never will. And yet, we cannot let this sort of cultural detachment, if you will, blind us to the glory and power that's still in the Pentateuch for us today. God preserved these books over the last 3,000 plus years for our blessing, even as much as He first gave them to Israel for their blessing. In fact, this morning as I was praying about this, it occurred to me that really these words are more of a blessing to us than they even were to Israel because we get the point of them. They just saw the pattern of things to come. We're seeing the fulfillment of things to come. They saw the tabernacle that was on the earth. We just worshiped inside the sanctuary, the real sanctuary where Jesus Christ is. The veil has been ripped in two and we now have access through the person of Jesus Christ to the very dwelling place of God. And as the writer of Hebrews said, Beloved, don't play with that. If you think about the punishment that came upon the people for playing with the pattern of things to come, think what will happen to us if we play with the real thing. Now the point is that the people who first received the Pentateuch had a great blessing, but we have a greater blessing. Because we understand the fulfillment of these things, at least in part. One of my aims over the next year or so will be to greatly exalt the place of the Pentateuch in your thinking and in the way that you live your life because God gave these things to us as His Word in order to enrich us for the glory of His name. Now with that, I want to spend our last few minutes together looking at several passages from the New Testament that I think serve like bridges. They build bridges between these ancient books and our contemporary lives in specific ways. And so what I want to do is sort of put the groundwork down for these bridges, and then over the next year or so, I'm going to return to these over and over and over again in an attempt to show you how Genesis through Deuteronomy actually apply to our everyday lives right here and right now. They are not simply distant books that have nothing to do with us. They live in our lives today, and we can learn to have the kind of passion that David had. So, let me begin with Jesus. At the end of the book of Luke, you can turn there if you'd like. Luke uh, chapter 24. I'm only going to be reading a few verses, but you can turn there. At the end of the book of Luke, we read the story of two of Jesus' disciples who were walking down the road to a little town called Emmaus, which was near to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ had just been crucified 
And word had gotten to these disciples that even though he was laid in a tomb, somehow or other his body was missing and, and the tomb was empty. But they didn't understand what had happened. They didn't realize that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They didn't really know who He was. They didn't understand what He was up to, even though they had walked with Him for some time. And so Luke says they were sad and they were perplexed. They sat there just wondering, what does all this mean? What are our lives about? What, what does it mean that we spent all of our time following this guy who is dead and now, now his body is missing? Well, just as they're discussing all this stuff, Jesus walks up on the road with them and begins walking with them, but they don't recognize who He is. I don't know quite how that works. Jesus looked different, or if they were just so shocked they wouldn't pay attention, I don't know. But one way or the other, they didn't realize Jesus Himself was walking along with them. And so Jesus says to them, what, what have you been talking about? And the disciples are a little bit perplexed, because they figure everybody in that region knows what had just happened with Jesus. That This wasn't done in a little corner. This was like a big, huge thing in Jerusalem. Everybody know, knew that Barabbas had been released and Jesus had been crucified. Everyone was talking about it. So they were a little bit perplexed that this guy didn't know what was going on. But one way or another, they took the time to explain the story to him anyway. And they came all the way up to the point at which they were at that moment. Namely, living in perplexity, living in despair, living in sadness, wondering what in the world was all that about? And why did we bother giving our lives to follow this guy named Jesus Christ? At that precise moment, Jesus opens his mouth and spoke these words, even though the disciples at this point still didn't understand who he was. Starting in verse 25, Jesus said this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then He gave the Bible study that I wish I could have been at. Of all the scenes of the Bible, I think I'd probably rather be here than almost anywhere else. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Are you hearing that? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus showed them, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So that's what, this is what that tells me. The most important bridge between the Pentateuch and our contemporary lives is Jesus Christ Himself. He Himself is the bridge. As Moses penned the words of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... He either knowingly or unknowingly was writing in prophecy about the person of Jesus Christ. Beloved, about 1,300 years before Jesus ever walked this earth, God inspired Moses to write in some detail about why Jesus had to come and some of the particulars of His coming. 1,300 years before He came. And therefore, if we will pay attention, beloved, we will find in the pages of the Pentateuch the shadow of Jesus Christ everywhere. Everywhere. He is actually there. Therefore, I would say that we should value the Pentateuch because it is the foundation of the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ that is our lives today. Tracy prayed about it in her prayer. Mike, you mentioned this as well. Jesse, I think you mentioned it as well as you were praying. But we have life today because we have believed in Jesus Christ. And through our belief, God has been incredibly merciful to us. Beloved, the foundation of that reality is here in the Pentateuch. It's everywhere. 
And one of my goals in the next year will be to show you over and over again, there's the Gospel. There's the Gospel. There's the Gospel. There's the Gospel. When you read these five books over the next year or so, look with me. Pay attention. Pray. Ask God to help you see Jesus in the pages of the Pentateuch because He's there. He's everywhere. Now, let's turn our attention to Paul. You can turn just to Romans 15. I'm going to mention another scripture in a minute, but Romans 15 is the one I want to key in on. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says this, all Scripture, and in Paul's mind that would have meant Genesis to Malachi, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And with these words, we have an eternal affirmation that the words of the Bible are not just human words, but they are actually the will and ways of God breathed out through the Spirit of God, through human personalities, and preserved for us over all these many years. Beloved, this book right here is not just another book. It's not. I remember in college, I entered into a very severe season of doubt as I began to be exposed to thinkers from all across the world that I had never been exposed to before. I didn't understand their way of thinking, their, their way of seeing the world. And as I got into their worlds more and more, I got really confused about this book. But I will tell you something, one of the things that saved me and kept me clinging to the God of the Word and the Word of God was I noticed that of all the hundreds of books I was reading in college and seminary, this one stood out like none else. This one had a power in my life like none else when I submitted myself to its precepts. The Word of God is not just another book. It comes from the being of God through the Holy Spirit, through human personalities, and it's given to us. Now, Paul in Romans 15 helps us understand why especially the Old Testament has been preserved for us who are in Christ. Have you ever taken time to think about that? I know there's even some churches out there that teach today that the Old Testament has no bearing in the lives of Christians. That's false teaching, by the way. That is severely false teaching. I would avoid people like that. But have you ever wondered, have you ever asked the question, God, if we're in Christ and He's fulfilled the whole Bible for us, He's fulfilled the law, He's fulfilled the prophets, why do we need these books? Why should we read these books? Why should we seek to understand them and apply the precepts to our lives? Well, Paul gives us at least one answer in Romans 15. In verse 4, he writes, 4, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Whatever was written before Jesus Christ was written for us who live in the light of Jesus Christ, that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So there's the second bridge. The second bridge between the ancient Pentateuch and our contemporary lives is this fact. God gave them to us as a gift for instruction, for encouragement, and for hope. He wants the hope of God to live in us and through us even as we see the stories of God on the pages of Scripture. And so God has told us the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the people of Israel, and whatever other stories He's told that we might have hope in God. That we might see that this God of ours is in fact gracious, 
and that He does in fact work all things together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose and who love Him. Beloved, you know as well as I do that on the pages of Scripture we have stories of the lives of real people, real broken people, real screwed up people, pardon my language. These are people who made huge mistakes in their lives, who did some very bad things in their lives. They're real people just like us, and yet, in spite of their brokenness, God used them for the glory of His name. That ought to fill us with hope. And so we should value the Pentateuch because the Pentateuch has been preserved for us that we might have hope in God. And I pray that every week as I preach my way through the Pentateuch, that I will help you to see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, and that I will also help you to see the hope that lies there for your daily life. This book is not just some ancient book. It really does apply to us every day as we're living in our homes, as we're living at work, as we're living in school, as we're living in the world. These books are for us. In fact, as I said, I think in some ways they're more for us than they were even for the people of Israel. Finally, one more place. Please turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. And I want to just quickly say a few words about those words that Jesse read for us at the beginning. Near the beginning of Peter's second letter, he reminded his readers that the things that he and the other apostles had taught them were not what he called cleverly devised myths. In other words, he, they didn't make this stuff up. They didn't spend a bunch of time like crafting some kind of story and then selling that story to the people. But rather what happened was that the apostles had walked and talked with Jesus Christ for a number of years and they simply passed on to others what the Lord Himself had taught them. And in the midst of reminding them about this, Peter also said, and listen, I was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, who was up on the mountain with Jesus Christ when He was transfigured when His normal, physical, earthly body was totally changed so that it shone bright as the sun with the glory of God. And as we stood there witnessing the glorified body of Jesus, we heard a voice from heaven. We heard the audible voice of God say, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Beloved, that was one of the most powerful and significant experiences that any human being has ever had in the history of the world. Not even Moses had an experience like that. You remember Moses asked to see the glory of God. And, and, and the Lord, it says in Exodus, I believe it is, just showed Moses his hind parts. Is how the, Greek, the Hebrew literally reads. He covered his face and only showed Moses his back. But now Peter, James, and John saw Jesus face to face, absolutely glorified, and they heard the audible voice of God from heaven. This was a powerful, powerful experience. In light of that, look at what Peter wrote beginning in verse 19. To me, it's breathtaking. He said to his readers, and we have something more sure that is to say, more sure than seeing Jesus Christ glorified and hearing the voice of God the Father from heaven. We have something that's even more sure than that. And what is that thing? It's the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit.
Beloved, Peter's point is that no experience with Jesus, no matter how powerful and significant that experience is, compares to the foundation that is the Word of God for us. And I don't want to take the time to do it because we're running short on time. But as I did with David, I think I could show pretty convincingly that Peter mainly had in mind the Pentateuch, the foundational books of the whole entire Bible when he was writing these things. He was saying that Moses was not carried along by himself, but he spoke the very words of God. And if we will build our lives on that Word of God, it will be a rock for us. It will be. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And so we should value the Pentateuch because it is a sure foundation for our lives, beloved. More sure than any direct experience with Jesus Christ that you or I could possibly have. The point of today's message is simply this. The Pentateuch is the Word of God. You've got to let this sink in. It is the Word breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit, through the personality and the pen of Moses. But it is the Word of God, not the words of a man. Therefore, it bears direct relationship to our lives as Christians. And the more we understand it, the more that we will grow in love for Jesus, hope in God, and the sense that our lives are in fact built upon the rock of God's Word. And so I pray that we would see these things in the coming year or so. And I pray that we would show our love for the God of the Word by submitting ourselves to the Word of God. And in the end, when we're done with this journey through the Pentateuch, I really pray, I've been praying every day for the church, that we would come to the place where David was, where we could say, Oh, Father, how we love Your law. There's so many people who minimize the Pentateuch. I pray that this church would deeply, from the depths of our hearts, say, Father, how we love Your law. In Christ, the law has been fulfilled for us. We don't need to submit ourselves to it in a sense. We are not under its obligation. And yet, Father, it's true to say that we love Your law. We value Your law. We appreciate Your law. We eat Your law like it's the richest of food. Oh God, I pray that He will grant us that request. And let's pray to that end now. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You in particular for Your work in the life of Moses. And I thank You for causing him to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I thank You that those 40 years in the desert were fruitful years. And that because of what you did in his life, some 3,300 years later, we're still sitting here reading these books that are so foundational to our lives. Lord, as we journey through the pages of the Pentateuch, I pray that you would help all of us to see Jesus Christ, to see the hope in God that is there, and to see the rock that is your word for our lives. Father, please take these things and make your word live in us and through us, I pray. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen.